0: everybody and welcome to invested i'm danielle town we are here today for the second half of our chat with author william green who wrote this fantastic book called richer wiser happier so without further ado the second part of our interview with william green enjoy were there any lessons that you took of, that related to the crash around COVID? Or did you speak to people around COVID and hear their thoughts yeah. specifically on what was going on?
1: Yeah, one of one of my favorite conversations about COVID. Um, it's it's a strange, strange piece of wording. Apologies, apologies for that w- wording, but one of the most fascinating conversations I had about COVID was with Ed Thorpe, who I, I describe as probably the greatest game player in the history of investing. Yeah. And this is this is a guy who i mean he's just a total genius he 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 figured out for one thing how to count cards he he's the inventor of that approach i gather uh where he figured out how to beat the casino at blackjack then he figures out how to beat the casino at roulette by creating this this wearable computer that he put in he, in he would he would activate it with the big toe in his shoe, so he could actually figure out how the ball was kind of flying around the rotator wheel and where it was likely to fall out of the 38 pockets on, on the roulette wheel. So here's a guy who's a genius at stacking the odds in his favor. So so when I was putting the finishing touches on the book, I called about 16 of the investors I'd written about to ask them about COVID and to see how they'd been dealing with it. And I said to him, so how did you handle COVID? How did you think about it? And this is in the midst of it. This is a few months after... I. I this is probably around June 2020, so so a few months after it had kind of really ripped through the, the the U.S., and he said to me, "Thank you for asking." And 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 he proceeded to explain in this incredible way how he had basically started. I think in about January of January 2020, when there hadn't been a single death in the U.S. reported he already basically started to analyze the data coming out of Wuhan in China and to figure out independently what the likely true fatality rate was. Then he he makes all of these inferences from the 1918 flu pandemic, which had actually killed his grandfather. So he understood the way that the pandemic spread because he understands numbers. And he gathers his family together and... This is in early February 2020, still before a single death had been reported in the U.S. And he says, over the next 12 months, we're going to see 200,000 to 500,000 deaths in the U.S. alone from this new coronavirus, and we need to start getting supplies in and taking precautions. And so, a month before all of the shelves started to get cleaned out in in stores of detergents and hand wipes and masks and stuff like that, he and his family very quietly. Went and bought masks and detergent and hand wipes and and hand wash, and he places himself in isolation with his wife in, in their beautiful house overlooking the beach in California, because he said, "Look, I'm I'm 86 years old. I have I have no comorbidities. Uh, I'm very fit. I run 21 marathons." But he said, "He said my odds of dying if I get COVID are somewhere between two and four percent," and so if you think about this it's it's a really beautiful illustration of how the great investors think he's 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 analyzing the evidence the data in this totally dispassionate way he's not listening to what the politicians are saying he's thinking for himself and he's avoiding catastrophe he's saying okay if i get this here are the odds of me dying let me take these precautions and he said he said it's not about being afraid i'm not afraid but he said 2 to 4% chance of dying is actually pretty high and I need to survive this period. And so it's the avoidance of catastrophe, the thinking for yourself, the analyzing the data and in a a dispassionate way. And and also one of the most distinctive things about the great investors is there's always this this emphasis on, on what you might describe as asymmetric bets, right? So you don't want to make a bet where there's unbelievable downside and minimal upside. You wanna make bets where there's minimal downside and huge upside. And so something like COVID for for, um, Ed Thorpe, he's making a bet where he's saying, well, the downside here, if I'm wrong, is that I die. Um, Let me just avoid that catastrophe. Let me stay in the game. And I would say that was absolutely critical to the way that he played roulette, to the way he played um, uh, blackjack, uh, and then to the way he operated when he had a hedge fund where he didn't have a losing quarter in 20 years that he was just trying to stay in the game and have these the so it's kind of like Joe Greenblatt said that if if you don't lose money all of the other options are good likewise with covid if you don't die and you survive <laughs> you, know, you know to that
2: to that you're point. ahead of the game <laughs> To that point, it seems like there's a, Danielle pointed this out to me actually years ago, and I, I was I sort of sat there stunned when I realized I had never really thought about this or read about it from anybody, but that if you think about staying in the game is the important critical thing, um, and then you look at what fund managers need to do to stay in the game, it is it seems that it can be quite uh, the opposite of what you need to do to be a great long-term investor. Um, there, I mean, you've you've named some of the interesting cases here where someone has seventy-seven billion dollars and they go down to a billion. Uh, Bruce Berkowitz went from I don't know eighteen billion down to six or five or one mm. now or whatever. Mm. <clears throat> and and it seems that the common thread through this is that if you're sitting in cash doing nothing, like Warren Buffett has pretty much for the last three years, and the market goes up a lot the pension funds which are loading these guys accounts are going to take their money out and they're going to move mm. it to a more active investor and as a result you know there's cautionary tales everywhere in the industry that you don't want to do that we're not going to be able to control our investors the way buffett does and as a result we can't play the game that way and and so i'm just wondering how how many of the people that you've interviewed brought that up as a as a requirement for them? Another, for for example, yeah. Guy Spear stays fully invested. He tries to. Yeah, we, we interviewed Guy a while back. Um, Monesh, I think, s- said that he regretted um, not getting out of the market or at least sitting in the market in Berkshire Hathaway when it went down in two thousand eight or nine, and he just realized that he, there's not a safe place to be when the entire market goes down but getting into cash is extremely dangerous you have investors you have to please whereas individual investors don't have that issue at all they they don't have anybody in the stands saying swing you bum right
1: yeah yeah
2: so how do how how much did that come up did how many times did, when you interviewed people did they did they were they explicit that yeah i would prefer to invest like that but i can't yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a hugely important point. And it's a, it's a tremendous structural weakness of a lot of mutual funds and hedge funds that that they can be really long-term focused and understand all of these principles. But if their investors don't understand or think they understand intellectually, but then when it actually comes down to it and they're trailing the market for years and they bail out, it's a tremendous vulnerability. And right. and I remember Jean-Marie Evillard talking to me about um, running running his fund, that it had tremendously successful results, something like 17 years. And then it came to the tech and internet bubble in the late 1990s. And he trailed by a mile for three years. And he said, if I remember rightly, he said, in the, in the first year when you underperform, your investors are mad. And in the second year, they're really upset. And in the third year, they're gone. And <laughs> his assets went from something like six and a half, seven billion to maybe two billion. And he was under tremendous pressure, um, not only, um, well, in, in every sense. And he 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 said, emotionally, it was tremendously difficult for himself. He said at a certain point, when everyone else is saying, look, you have to buy these, these dot-com stocks, everyone else is getting rich in a hurry. He said, you start at a certain point to say, Am I a fool if I lost it? Do do I not understand? Is there a new paradigm? So he said he was he was eating himself up with his own doubt. Then he said there was this internal pressure from his bosses, where they're salesmen, right? They 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 want to gather assets so they can make more fees. And here's this guy who's trying to be really rational and saying, "No, I'm not buying these crazy things, even though everyone everyone wants to own them. I'm not buying them because they're going to fall apart." And he said he said one day. Someone said to him, um, yeah, well, Jean-Marie, he's half senile. He, he heard that one of the executives had said that about him. And and he and he was only 57, I think, at the time. And he went home to his wife, who was this very tough investment banker, really smart person. And, and he said, yeah, and this executive apparently has been saying, Jean-Marie is half senile. And he said she didn't even look up from her paper. And she just said, only half? And so he, was, so he was dealing with this tremendous uncertainty in not knowing really whether he was right or wrong to be avoiding all of these bubble stocks. He was pretty sure he was right. But then if all of this internal pressure and then all of his shareholders bailing out at the worst possible moment. And the same thing happened with Bill Miller during the financial crisis, where at these moments where he was able to buy Amazon, which he'd owned since the beginning, at unbelievably cheap levels, his shareholders all lost faith in him and bailed out. And so they all locked in their losses because there was one year where one of his funds went down, I think 65% and another of his funds went down 55%. And so everyone was bailing out because they lost faith in him. And Miller told me recently that during that period, he basically made a leverage bet on Amazon um, while everyone else was, was bailing out that has proven so lucrative that he said recently, he 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 said to Jeff Bezos, are your proxy statements right? Like, are your documents right about who owns the most stock inside the company? And and Bezos was like, yeah, yeah, of course they're right. And and so Miller said, well, in that case, I think I own more stock personally in Amazon than anyone whose last name isn't Bezos. And so at the exact moment when you should have been buying Amazon, all of all of the shareholders in his fund were panicking and were selling. And Bill Miller was smart enough to go against the crowd and to buy at that moment. And, and so I think that points at some of the difficulties of being a resilient and rational investor that you, you, you need not only to be able to go against the crowd and think for yourself independently, you, there are also these structural problems that if you're in a fund where everyone else can bail out, um, you might get taken down with them. And, and I, I don't know, one, one of the reasons why I invest in Guy Spears' fund that I've owned for 20 odd years is because there is kind of sticky money in there. Half the money in the fund is his family's money. And so I sort of feel, well, I know that the fund is going gonna, is, is gonna to be doing rational stuff because he's not going to want to lose his father's money and his sister's money and his aunt and uncle's money. So we're aligned and we're in the same... We're in the same share class, so if he's wrong, he's going to suffer too, and so are all of his family members. And and he is long term because he's investing their money, and I think the money is sticky because I don't think his father is suddenly going to panic. Um, but when I was helping Guy write his memoir, the educational value investor, this is something we talked about a lot, and 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 we talked about the fact that during the financial crisis, there was a moment where his father could have pulled out all of his money and it would probably have tanked the fund. And, and as we were discussing this, Guy becomes very moved by this story because he realizes that his father was kind of this giant and, and in the midst of the crisis, kept kept faith and believed in him and allowed him to invest in a really long-term way and set up the fund to have this incredible rebound in, in the years since the financial crisis. And what's interesting is that Guy's father was actually in in the Israeli army and used to be one of the people who would dismantle bombs. And so it seems to me, here's a guy who can handle tremendous uncertainty and can handle tremendous risk and and keep calm and rational in those moments. And and so I think the success of the fund was not only because Guy was rational and smart and his his instincts are, his, his incentives are aligned with the shareholders incentives. It's because his dad was a, was a guy who had the temperament of, of an Israeli dismantler of, of live bombs. And, and it's not entirely dissimilar to what we were discussing before about Charlie Munger in, in March 2009 being totally fearless as, as the market is melting down and saying, look at Wells Fargo, this company that everyone hates in the worst possible sector. And yet it's so cheap that it's a once in 40 year opportunity. Of being and, able
2: to buy it, and with Charlie, you know, coming into Wells Fargo right then, but with full control of of uh, the Daily Journal uh, investment capital and his own, um, you have you have contrary to that, you have Berkowitz who jumps into Bank of America, Citi, and AIG at exactly the same time at exactly the the best prices. And by 2011, when, when those stocks had gone up and then started coming down again as a result of the bond crisis, um, Berkowitz's fund disappeared. I mean, huh. people just pulled their money because the market was pretty flat or going up a little bit. And he was down like 30% in those three stocks, which were his entire $18 billion portfolio. Mm. And so here's Munger able to ride right through that without a without losing any sleep and Berkowitz is losing his entire fund yeah same exact type of investor totally different kinds of pressure which is to me just night to me it makes it makes the argument that an individual investor has an advantage yeah over these professionals that overcomes intellect IQ, I mean, there's two advantages. You have you can be as patient as you want to be. Nobody's telling you to do anything. And you don't have anybody screaming at you that's, that's going to take their money yeah. out and make it disappear. I I mean, those are huge advantages. I'd also yeah, so me, oh, go ahead, me, William.
1: Yeah, sorry. Let me give you two practical takeaways from that that I think are really helpful. Because we've discussed some really complicated issues where I think people can feel kind of helpless in some ways. They, they can be like, well, so what do you do if you don't know whether the fund is going to survive, or whatever? Um, Or if the manager is going to keep his courage at the uh, the key moment and i think one of the practical takeaways here is is something that sir john templeton said to me 20 years ago which he said he said for the average investor you should own probably four five six funds because you shouldn't have the arrogance to assume that you can pick the best fund or you can pick the best country or the best asset class Uh, so in a sense you're hedging against your own inability to predict whether that fund will continue to be the best or that fund manager will will stay married and won't get depressed and won't take his eye off the ball or or that there won't be a crisis where everybody else sells and even though the manager is rational, he loses control of his fund. And, And so I think that very simple idea of knowing that you should probably own five or six invest with five or six people. And what Templeton said to me is, you should invest in in five or six funds that are exposed to different areas of the market. So that I, I think about that often, that I think anytime I'm trying to get carried away and I think, wow, I found this one amazing investor, let me give them all of my money. I remember Templeton and I just think, yeah, let me hedge against my own incompetence and my own hubris and my own overconfidence. And, and so... I I own three actively managed funds and two index funds. And I think that's a, if I diversified more, I think I would just be dooming myself to underperform with high expenses. But I think if I diversified less, I'd be exposing myself to the risk that there'll be a, a, you know, literally the the fact, if, if 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 a fund manager gets divorced and gets really depressed and takes their eye off the ball at the wrong moment, or if their CEO feuds with them and, and replaces them at exactly the wrong time. There are all of these institutional problems. So I, I think that simple idea of diversifying is a profoundly important one, but there is a tension because if you diversify too much, you end up just underperforming and you might as well own the index fund. And then the other thing I would say is given that we have this tremendous advantage as individual investors, as you mentioned, in terms of our own ability to stay patient and and not to sell at the worst possible time. I think you have to somehow uh, deeply internalize and and systematize a patient approach with yourself. And so one thing that I've done is I I literally, because I'm too incompetent and uh, technologically hapless to be able to use things like Excel, I have my investments just on a sheet in Microsoft Word sort of listed. And at the top, it just says, resilient wealth creation to remind me that that's my goal. And then underneath them, I I just say, okay, here's my rule. My rule is I'm not allowed to sell a single thing for the next five years. And so if I buy one of these stocks or one of these funds, I'm just saying, well, that's not even an option. I, I don't have the option of selling until 2027. And so I'm kind of forcing myself to be patient for the next five years because I know that I don't want to be panicking at the worst time and I don't want to be trading in and trading out. And for me, that simple rule is a, is a way of reminding myself of what monish said, which is that, that extreme patience is the number one rule in investing.
0: I think what Powerful. I hear you both saying is it depends on the structure. It goes back to what, we, what you were saying at the beginning when we first started talking. What's the structure of a fund, what's the structure of your own personal investing plan, and set that structure up so that the quality is as high as you can possibly make it. So for instance, Nomad, Nick Sleep's fund, I believe, had a five-year lockup. So yeah. exactly the way you set up your yeah. own personal choices, he set it up for his fund that nobody could well, leave. it wasn't
1: an official Oh, lock-up. it wasn't it official. Was, he, made them, he made them sign a piece of paper basically saying that it was a five-year investment, and so he said, "I was just putting it in that psychological space where they they would think of this differently hmm. than other funds." And and one of the reasons that I've stayed invested in in Guy Spears' fund for twenty or so years is that because he's a close friend, I would feel this tremendous sense of betrayal if I sold the fund. Hmm. I would I would be personally embarrassed. So I'm actually using this quirk in my own character to force myself to be a long term investor. And so. I've said to him many times, I regard this as a 40-year investment. And I think that's really rare, actually, to understand the tremendous benefits of compounding over time, just, just staying in the game, just not selling. And one of the things that Guy has done is is, is own Berkshire Hathaway since the very start of the, the, the fund 22 years ago. And in that 1999-2000 tech and dot-com bubble, he put something like a quarter of his fund's money in uh, in Berkshire Hathaway because it was so cheap. And back then, everyone was saying that Buffett was finished and he'd lost his touch. And here, here again, we are all these years later with everyone saying he's lost his touch. He's too old. He's he's sitting on all of this cash. He doesn't understand this stuff. And after all of these years, Guy still owns it. And and because I don't want to betray Guy's friendship by leaving the fund, he's managed to keep me invested in in Berkshire. For many more years than I would have been able temperamentally to do. So I think if there's a takeaway, it's it's first, it's the it's the understanding that this extreme patience is a tremendous benefit instead of renting stocks, trading in and out, trying to trying to be like a, a heat-seeking missile and going into the hottest areas of the market. And and also this idea that um that manga has that I hope people will understand from reading my book, which is just to focus on not being stupid, on just reducing these obvious dumb mistakes of, of of being impatient, being impetuous, being impulsive, being greedy, overreaching, um listening to listening to salespeople who don't have your interests at heart. You know, all of these really obvious things, if you avoid those standard stupidities, you're so far ahead of the game. And, and the returns, the rewards of long-term compounding are so astounding. That you kind of can't fail to do well, I think.
2: Families have
1: a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Brilliant.
0: William, I could listen to you talk for hours more, but I feel like we've (laughs) taken enough of your time. I'd love to ask you one last question. Just at the end of the book, you talk about your absolute favorite investor. And I wonder if you can tell us who that is and and especially why out of all of these luminaries, he's your favorite investor.
1: Yeah. I, I ended the book by, by writing about a man called Arnold Vandenberg who I said is not, um, he's not a genius. He doesn't own a yacht. He doesn't own a private plane. Uh, He's not a billionaire, but I regard him as the most successful human being I've met in Mm. the investment world. Mm. And and I'm writing in that epilogue of the book about what actually constitutes a truly abundant, truly successful life. And, and I write about what money gives you, what, why money is important, how it helps in terms of giving you financial security, independence, um, uh, the freedom to live your life the way you choose to live your life. And I don't diminish the importance of those things. But, but Arnold really embodies what I would regard in a much deeper sense as a successful life. And one of the things that's really striking to me about him is that he, he was dealt the worst hand imaginable. I mean, this is, this is a guy who was born into a Jewish family in 1939 in Amsterdam on the same street as Anne Frank. And so he spent the first couple of years of his life in hiding. Um, he, then his parents at a certain point decided, wait a second, if the Nazis come in and search our house where, where they were hidden actually by some friends behind a fake wall in this house, if they come in and they hear arnold crying or his brother um, sigmund crying they'll they'll arrest us all they'll arrest the family that's hiding us they'll send us to auschwitz and the first people who get killed in auschwitz are the are the um the women and the children and so so his parents made this desperate gamble where basically they found um these people from the, the Dutch resistance, this girl who was about 17, who didn't know the family, risks her life by smuggling Arnold out of this house into the countryside uh, where he was hidden in this Christian orphanage for the next few years. And so he he started in the worst possible way. He felt, he, he felt that he'd been abandoned by his parents. He felt that his parents didn't want him. He, he had no idea what the real reason was why they were hiding him in this orphanage. His parents ended up actually getting arrested and sent to Auschwitz. Amazingly, both of them survived. Mm. And when they came at the end of the war to pick him up from the orphanage um, in 1945, he was about six years old. By that time, he couldn't even recognize his parents, and he was basically shuffling along on his knees because he was so malnourished that he couldn't that he couldn't walk. Mm. And so, people thought that he actually had brain damage because he'd been so badly nourished as a kid and and then he moves to la to this very violent area in la where he was just prey as he put it so he was just like beaten up on his first day at his new school because his mom dressed him in lederhosen and long socks and so he had this terrible start to his life and he, he barely made it through high school and yet somehow managed to transform his life in these extraordinary ways to become a very successful fund manager and an unbelievable human being, incredibly charitable, decent, kind, loving human being. And so what I try to explain in that last section of the book is how he how he gained control over his inner landscape, over his mind, that even if you have all of the money in the world, but you're miserable internally, you're consumed by fear or anger or jealousy or whatever, your life is going to be a misery. And, and Arnold came out of the war full of hatred for, for the Germans, full of anger. I mean, his, his father, having survived the Holocaust, used to beat Arnold up. And so Arnold is like this physically abused kid, full of rage, and gradually over many years, transforms himself. And one of the things that he did literally was he learned to hypnotize himself And then he became totally obsessed with affirmations and and spiritual teachings from many different faiths. And he would tell himself over and over again, I am a loving person. And so he basically, at a certain point, he rewires his brain so that instead of being full of hatred and anger and self-pity and a sense of victimization, all of which were totally justified, he becomes this very loving, very kind, compassionate human being. And there's something to me really Incredibly uplifting about that. It makes you think. Well, given that I wasn't dealt that bad a hand. I mean, we were all dealt our, 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 our fair share of bad cards, but very few of us were dealt as many bad cards as Arnold. Uh, I mean, Arnold had 39 members of his family were killed in the Holocaust by the Nazis. Right? I mean, he came through the worst possible, the worst possible fire. If he can transform himself and take care of his inner life and become a really loving, really decent, really charitable, really uplifting person, what what can I do? And that to me is a very, very important lesson is, is what you can learn from people like Arnold about actually how to live and about how to gain control of your inner landscape. and. One of the things that was really striking to me, he he asked me a few weeks ago, we were talking on the phone and he said, I don't understand why you say I'm the most successful of all of these people. Like, what, what were you meaning? And I said, well, A, it's because you, because you managed to transform your mind in this extraordinary way and, and play this terrible, terrible hand beautifully. But I said, B, I see the joy that you take in helping other people. Mm-hmm. And it's a really amazing thing to see this guy who, who, really just delights in helping you. I mean, he he literally he hypnotized me on the floor of his office one day. I spent two and a half days with him in in Texas interviewing him for this book. And at a certain point he's like, yeah, I'm I'm gonna help you rewire your mind so that so that I put better better thoughts in your head. Uh, and so I'm like lying on lying on the floor of his study as he's playing for valve his Four Seasons, and he's created these affirmations that he inserts in my in my mind in my subconscious mind while I'm lying on the floor. And I can't tell you the delight that he took out of helping me, and how many times we've talked since then in ways where he's just looking to help me. And that to me is a wonderful is a, a wonderful example of how to live. And I, I I end the book with with this scene where. He he, we're sitting in his office in Texas, and he points to this cabinet full of letters from people who he's helped over the years, including family members, like his kids saying, what a wonderful father he's been. And he says, look, even if I lose everything, even if I have no money, I'm still the richest man in the world. He said, I can look at at these letters and I can see, well, I changed all of these lives. And he sort of points to that that cabinet full of these letters. And he says, that's my bank account. Hmm. And I thought... Well, what a wonderful human being, you know, yeah, he's made plenty of money, and he's, and he's been a successful money manager over 40 years. But that that was very moving to me. And I, I I didn't want to write this book, and just leave people with this idea of, yeah, you should become as rich as possible, regardless of, of, of ethics and sharing and stuff like that. And, you know, your own resilience and peace of mind. I wanted to say to people, this is actually what constitutes a truly abundant life. And I and I think Arnold embodies that in a way that's very inspiring. And it's and and so in many ways, he's he's become of all of these people the best role model for me. And it's and it's not because he's smart, he's the smartest or the richest, but I think I think he has a deep wisdom and he he embodies much of much of what I would like to become in life. So so that's that's why I end the book with him.
0: Amazing! Fantastic! Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for this being has been
1: here.
2: Fabulous! Thank you for spending so much time with us, William. Look forward to meeting you up in New York one of these days when everything's wide open. It'd be great to have another lunch. Uh, look forward. I would to love it. to
1: do that. Uh,
2: that would be great. All right. And
1: thank you so much. It's 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 a, a privilege and a pleasure to be on your show, and and I've missing you. It's it's probably five years since we had lunch, and so I'm uh, one of one of the treats of reopening will be to have lunch with you guys either. New York or Zurich or wherever it is, I I'll look forward. One
2: hundred percent looking forward to it. Thank you again, and uh, I guess Danielle, that's about it. Except for one more thing, I want to yep. make
0: sure we say the name of the book one more time. It's richer, get wiser, book. happier. Find it on Amazon or your independent bookstore or your ebook reader. Everywhere, go get it.
2: It's so good. Um, Have we ever done this for any other book besides the one? I don't think we we've write? ever I don't held think it up. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is fantastic so oh, go get um, and
0: william where can people find out more about what you're up to on twitter or facebook
1: yeah i'm on i'm on twitter uh at, i think william green 72 uh you can connect with me on linkedin uh where else my website is williamgreenwrites.com. um and feel free to message me or email me i i, I do actually try to respond and i i love the fact that i have this communication with people who tell me about certain ideas in the book that have actually really affected them and, and changed their lives. It's, it's lovely. I, I, so I, I'm, I'm really happy to uh, hear from your listeners if they contact me, but I apologize if, if I'm, if I'm too scattered and I've failed to reply, but I will try to reply.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Richer, Wiser, Happier Thanks.
1: by William
2: Green. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
2: And everybody, thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. Time to go play.